0: Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, my mother sent me an article from The Atlantic. The title of the article was called The Role of Cognitive Dissonance in the Pandemic. And the article just tries to explain possibly why we're living in an age where some people believe we should be wearing masks, other people are not wearing masks. And it brings up this term called cognitive dissonance. And it's the idea of just having inconsistent thoughts and beliefs especially when they go into our behavioral decisions. And here's the best paragraph I read. Members of Heaven's Gate, a religious cult, believed that as the Hale-Bopp comet passed by Earth in 1997, a spaceship would be traveling in its wake, ready to take true believers aboard. Several members of the group bought an expensive, high-powered telescope so that they might get a clearer view of the comet. They quickly brought it back and asked for a refund. When the manager of the store asked why, they complained that the telescope was defective, that it didn't show the spaceship following the comet. A short time later, believing that they would be rescued once they had shed their earthly containers, all 39 members killed themselves. Heaven's Gate followers had a tragically misguided conviction but it is an example, albeit extreme, of cognitive dissonance, the motivational mechanism that underlies the reluctance to admit mistakes or accept scientific findings, even when those findings can save our lives. This dynamic is playing out during the pandemic among the many people who refuse to wear masks or practice social distancing. Human beings are deeply unwilling to change their minds, and when the facts clash with their pre-existing convictions some people would sooner jeopardize their health and everyone else's than accept new information or admit to being wrong. And this article just continues to go on. It gives other examples of cognitive dissonance in our society. It definitely has a focus of trying to look at our current situation with COVID-19 and the pandemic and social distancing and masks. Do you have any opening thoughts about what you thought of the article, Don?
1: To be clear, cognitive dissonance, as my understanding, is that you have two thoughts that do not agree with each other, and it makes you uncomfortable. And so you have to change one of them because otherwise it's uncomfortable to live. So if I think I'm a good parent and that I almost signed my son up for a basketball tournament or a basketball league starting now, I have to think that basketball's safe because otherwise I'd be a bad parent if I signed up my kid for a team when it's risky to do so for all involved and probably bad for everybody in the long run. So you have to change your mind in order to make that work. And I think it drives so many of the decisions people make. If people have decided that Donald Trump is their leader and fantastic, they have a tough time acknowledging that He was wrong about something or that some things he does are not right. And you have to really accommodate different thoughts in order to deal with this.
0: Going back to your situation about signing your son up for basketball, basically, if you do sign him up, you say, I am uncomfortable about it, but I don't want him to fall behind in his basketball career. And that's how you justify it. I thought what was really interesting in this article is it sort of explains how we can justify to ourselves why we do certain behaviors that maybe aren't always
1: safe. And we explain them away or we rationalize them. We ultimately not, did not sign them up for basketball, but the idea that our decisions have to be matched with our thoughts means that when we really want to do something, we have to change our thoughts or our beliefs to make our decisions okay, to make it all right, to pursue life as we find comfortable. And it happens quite often. And it's a lot harder to fight with cognitive dissonance and really rethink our decisions and our beliefs. I was
0: sort of aware of this concept. I guess I haven't really thought about it. And this article does a great job of really making you think about the idea. But also I found myself using a lot of the ideas from this article to help explain the world that we live in. I think one thing when you look at economics, economics assumes that humans are rational, that humans are only going to make the best decisions for them. But then you read an article like this and you realize, man, like there is not a lot of rationality in human thought or behavior. And I also just found myself thinking a lot about watching Fox News or watching CNN and watching these political commentators just get up and just hold a line about a particular belief. No matter if there's scientific evidence that disproves it, it's like, nope, we're going to stay right here and I'm just going to keep pushing forward. And one of the frustrations I always find with just politicians in general is they rarely ever seem like they can just admit that they're wrong. Instead, you you just keep holding that line. You keep fighting for what you want. I guess this article in some ways brought me some comfort, just sort of maybe saying, okay, I guess this is how they're behaving. This is why they're doing it.
1: Well, I think the American public wants absolutes. They don't want people to say they're wrong or they made a mistake. And I think that's some of the uh, door that Donald Trump gets is that he says he's always right and he's the smartest man in the room and people want to believe that. And if you admit errors, then you, are, you change your evolving beliefs, as the term goes, that you are somehow weak. But it's also a little more difficult and nuanced to look at this. I was reading an article about Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan appeared in a, with some German anti-Semitic organization, and Ariel Sharon, the leader of Israel, was asked about this. And America had been a constant supporter of Israel at that point, and Ronald Reagan in particular was a good friend to Israel. And Ariel Sharon said, the friend is still a friend, and the mistake is still a mistake. But it's okay to have friends that make mistakes. And I thought that was so sophisticated. And to really look at the situation and analyze and say that instead of, they're our enemy, they're our friend, we love them, we hate them. Life is not that simple. And I think we all really know that that friendships, that relationships, all these things are much more intangible and much more nuanced than we really think they are. I like that point. People
0: are pretty aware that life is just one big shade of gray. And yet in so many ways in society, we like to make it black and white. Maybe that's um, some sort of an evolutionary thing in our brain where we can't deal in shades of gray in the moment. We have to either say you're on this side or you're on that side. Just that same point you said, like you've got to stop. And in the article, it even, you know, suggests instead of just having a snap judgment decision, they kind of give out some, some questions one should ask themselves. They say, why am I believing this? Why am I behaving this way? Have I thought it through or am I simply taking a shortcut? following the party line or justifying the effort I put in to join the group. But those are a lot of questions that one has to stop and sort of ask themselves. Do you think that you could actually like improve your discussion or your thinking through of cognitive dissonance? Or do you think this is just something that humans are just wired to do? It's just a matter of trying to at least be aware of it.
1: So I was a psychology major mostly because there was a cute girl in my psychology class that was also on the track team. I followed her to whatever class she went, but I later married her. But in my psychology classes, they talked a lot about saving energy and that the brain is wired to save energy. And so things like stereotypes, things that allow us to make quick decisions without fully analyzing every decision. I'm sure you've headed out of your driveway at some point to go somewhere and found yourself in the wrong place because you forgot you were going somewhere else, but your brain's pre-programmed. And if we pre-programmed to just analyze things on an existing schema then it's a lot easier for our brains. If we really had to ponder everything, it would be exhausting. Imagine walking to Costco without a list and really analyzing every product on the shelf. It would take you forever, and you'd be spent when you left. Instead, you have the pattern where you go, the things you always buy. And if you go to a different Costco, It's so frustrating because you can't operate the way your brain is designed to just follow the path of my pre-existing decisions I've already made. And so if we really have to analyze every individual decision, we'd never get anything done. But in some important ways, you really need to sit back and analyze and rethink it.
0: I like that idea of being overwhelmed intellectually with so many decisions. And yet the result, though, seems to be just sort of jumping in on a team or or kind of jumping in with the madness of a crowd and then just kind of holding the line. Essentially, that doesn't seem like a great solution either. When I was reading this article, I hate to admit it, but the first thing I thought about was the main event at WrestleMania 4. Here was Macho Man Randy Savage trying to beat Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man. And Andre the Giant just kept kind of interfering in the match on behalf of Ted DiBiase. All of a sudden, it, it, at the high point of the match, DiBiase has Macho Man in a sleeper hold. And Macho Man's starting to waver. He's, he's going to go down. And the referee gets distracted. He starts looking over and yelling at Andre. And Hulk Hogan, the hero, right? Say your prayers. Eat your vitamins. Train hard. Gets into the ring. Takes a chair and smashes it over the back of the Million Dollar Man. And it leads to Randy Savage winning the title. What's interesting, though, is Hogan takes a moment to look at the crowd. And the crowd loves Hogan. And we've always thought, this is the good guy. This is what's right with life. But I remember being eight years old and sort of thinking, he cheated. Like, Hogan's cheating, and yet I'm cheering for this. It just seems like I'm no better than anybody else now, right? We've just kind of dirtied ourselves. We've justified poor behavior.
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) we can excuse you for being eight years old and falling into the trance of Hogan and uh, um, being a Hulkamaniac. But the idea is not different from today is that you just follow your person and your side and that you're always on that side. And it's a little bit more difficult to really sit back and analyze it. Like I said, I was very surprised when you said you like Trump foreign policy. But then I looked back and I said, yeah, that's not, I don't have big problems with most of his foreign policy other than letting the Saudis kill a bunch of people and so forth. But it's, it's something you have to really step back and look at.
0: Well, I guess what's interesting about this article is it really focuses on masks. And you and I are pretty big believers in masks. I think at this point, it's interesting when you go out into public and when you go into places where everybody's wearing a mask, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And then you see people that don't wear a mask. You instantly sort of form your own thoughts. Just like I've gone into other places where I'm almost the only person wearing a mask and you can almost feel like you're the one being judged by that. Yet, I think what this article is is sort of really making me think a lot is, okay, So it's sort of about masks. It seems like it's trying to explain why some people want to wear a mask or why don't people want to wear a mask. But then I just started thinking about my own life even further. And I'm wearing Nike shoes right now. Probably they were made in a sweatshop. That's bad. How do I justify that, right? I'm using an Apple iPhone to record this podcast right now. Apple has had some issues with their mass production and how people are being treated at Foxconn plants in China. I would love to eat a McDonald's hamburger today, yet I know that eating beef is bad for the environment and the cows probably had a miserable life while they were being raised. I own a dachshund that I bought from maybe not the most reputable of breeders, and I probably should have gotten a rescue dog, right? Because there's lots of dogs that need home. So... Am I any better than the person that doesn't wear masks? Here are all these areas in my life where I'm probably not doing the best job, or I can easily point out why it's bad,
1: and yet I'm wearing a mask. So therefore, I get to feel like I'm on the good team. I think you can pat yourself back in that one sense. But it's, if we analyze everything in life, it's just paralyzing. I read an article about a woman who does not use plastic at all. She avoids plastic. She only shops at stores where she can buy her yogurt with her glass containers, which she reuses over and over again and again. And she goes to a farmer's market with a brown bag and won't buy anything with plastic in it. And yes, plastic is destroying our world. And in the deepest trenches in the ocean, there's microplastics and it's in everything with unknown effects forever and it's never gonna go away. Because can you imagine how much time and energy that would take just to do this right thing versus that right thing? It's paralyzing to think about the opportunity costs of every possible right decision. Certainly having extra children. We had children, both of us, separately. And our kids are consuming a lot of carbon. They had diapers that are never going to biodegrade. They, they're they using goods. They're creating carbon. I mean, every decision has an opportunity cost. So you can't be paralyzed in that way.
0: That's why I started to struggle with this article as I kind of finished with it. This is, again, it was a—it was very mass focused in the article. and. Again, I read this and I almost want to feel like I'm on the right side of public health. I'm on the right side of this. And therefore, I get to look down upon people that don't believe in masks. But yet, as you just pointed out, look at all the other things I'm doing wrong. What if there's a non-mask wearer out there who recycles everything and rides a bike, doesn't drive a car, and does a lot of other better things? Are we sure that
1: they're not a better net gain for the planet than me? I don't think, I, I mean, in the great scheme of things, maybe they are, but maybe they're killing people around them. I think the worst crime is that in the face of the leaders who are not modeling masks. We, there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal this morning. We've wasted our opportunity. All of Europe is keeping their numbers low because during the lockdown, they figured out how to trace, how to implement standards, how to regulate people, how to make sure that we wouldn't, it wouldn't come back. And now the United States is the only civilized country, not civilized, wrong word, the only wealthy country that is really having numbers come back up because we wasted our chance. If we had leaders that focused on that, that is the number one issue right now. Maybe in a year, the number one issue is carbon. But the number one issue is the one you have to worry most about it. And I think right now it's masks. Now, I have another question for you. If people don't want to wear a mask, they may say to themselves, it's my body. I can choose what to do with it. It's my, I, I can choose whether to wear one. Fair? Sure then these people are all pro-choice, right? Because women have bodies that they can do whatever they want with their bodies, just like you can wear a mask. So if a person says, yeah, I can wear a mask or not wear a mask, could then, and say, I just choose not to go to Starbucks or Home Depot or Costco where they require masks, could then they say like, oh, by that point, then women have the right to choose to do with what their, what their bodies what they want. And then are they going to experience that cognitive dissonance? Is it too much of reach to really open their minds and think like, this is how you, you can do your body however you would like. That's a, it's, it's a big leap, I think.
0: I think you could definitely use that sort of line of thinking, of questioning, to maybe bring somebody who's into personal freedom, making their own choices, and saying, well, wouldn't you then also believe in that? But I'm sure people would come up with other reasons or other justifications for why they still believe the way they do. In fact, one of the things that I, I think that this article kind of points at is the worst thing you can do to try to get somebody to understand their behavior or to try to get somebody to change their mind is to essentially sort of shame them or to make them feel bad about the choice that they're making. Cause usually that will just harden that. So I wonder if, if you were to bring up that line of
1: questioning, do you think you could convince somebody to wear a mask if you use that? No. I would hope to evoke the idea that I hold two inconsistent cognitions, and that's what cognitive dissonance is, is to say, I'm a good person, but I eat at McDonald's, or I'm a good person, but I don't wear a mask, or, and to try and get people to reexamine. But I don't think most people really want to reexamine this. Ultimately, it's very uncomfortable for us to challenge that. We had a family member over and they are anti-climate change. And when I just, I could have gone into some sort of an argument and discussion or try to think about it. And I just shied away because I just thought this would be really uncomfortable to challenge somebody's hard held belief, which is really the problem with cognitive dissonance is, do we really want to challenge people on their strongly held beliefs? We have good friends that believe very different from us on key issues. We don't talk about it. Because we want to keep our friendship, and that's something that is very challenging for I think anybody to do. You know, there's lots of discussions that my
0: wife and I will avoid with certain people just because. Yeah, you're right. Like I still like that person fundamentally. It's kind of like you said about the Reagan quote. Like they're my friends, and we just happen to disagree about certain things, and and we can still exist in a world. I do wonder if we might be able to have a better society if we could find a way to politely communicate our thinking without the intent of trying to convince and reform or change somebody, but instead just trying to come up with a better understanding, gaining more empathy for why people sort of feel this certain way. That's something I noticed that was not in this article is why aren't we kind of talking to people that aren't wearing masks, aren't social distancing, and trying to get a better sense of what's going through their mind? One of the great critiques of, of liberalism over the last 20, 30 years is it's so high-handed. It always looks down upon a certain segment of society as you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. And I do think there's some truth to that. Is it possible that that's just sort of like shaming people? And therefore, some people are just going to
1: hold their beliefs even more because they don't feel like they're being respectfully spoken to. And they don't believe that somebody else has the right to tell them what to do. And to say, like, I I disagree with your beliefs and your beliefs are wrong, it's a hard thing for them to swallow from people that they don't know or haven't met or don't agree with. And so I think it's really hard for people that truly believe in Confederate monuments to understand that it's totally inappropriate now, but yet they can't really swallow that. And so we just kind of live parallel lives and don't address these issues. I remember vividly, we had an Obama sign in our front yard when he, President Obama ran for office in 2008, and my neighbor had a whole bunch of McCain signs. And the, somebody in the middle of the night grabbed his McCain signs, ripped them out of the ground, and threw them on the ground next to my Obama sign, which they left up. So in the morning, I went out to get the paper, and I said, oh, gosh, these I know where these McCain signs came from. So I had to walk over to my neighbor's house and uncomfortably say, "Like I think somebody threw these on the floor, ground by my Obama sign. Do you want to take these? And we were just kind of looking at each other like, yeah, we're not going to talk about this. We're just going to move on, and that's what we did. We moved on. I could have had the conversation. I felt I don't dis- didn't dislike him, but it just it was the oddest situation, and that's the way it is with some people with people that don't agree with you on key issues. We just let it slide. It's very rarely that we challenge them. Well, it's interesting
0: that you wrote down Obama because he was something that I was also somebody I was also thinking about when I was reading this article and that. You know, Obama, just like our current president, has his own cult of personality. And there's a lot of people that that love what Obama stood for and the the office that he ran. But what's interesting is that I don't think Obama was great for public education. He was trying to promote taking down public education in in terms of his race to the top initiatives. One of the things that got underreported was that a lot of illegal immigrants were deported under the Obama administration. Obama ran as sort of the guy that was going to get us out of wars in the Middle East, and yet he increased drone strikes way ahead of where the Bush administration was. All of those things you could say would be stuff that would not be very popular among many of his constituents, but they sort of get a free pass. And so it's not like this is just a a George Bush or a Donald Trump or an anybody leader thing. It's like every leader has things that they do that people that support them are just willing to ignore.
1: Oh, absolutely. And people look, look at Obama. They, if, if George Bush had done some of the things with unions and with drone strikes that Obama did, they, people would be up in arms. Because Obama did, it, they gave him a pass. At the same time, people think terrible about Richard Nixon. And I look back and I'm like, well, Environmental Protection Act, that was pretty good like Clean Air Act, these are all things that Richard Nixon, a Republican, did. And you can look back and say, oh, wow, that was pretty good. I guess it's easy to take your person, your, your hero, and go with them no matter what. Some people cheer for Alabama football. I'm sure Alabama football is cheating and doing all sorts of sketchy things, but if you're an Alabama football fan, you cheer for them.
0: It's an interesting point you bring up football because one of the great critiques of the Michigan football program is that It's kind of a middle-level, average football program over the last couple of decades. Yet its large fan base continues to think it's something really special and really great. And yet, you really can't find a lot of Big Ten titles lately. You can't find a lot of national championships. You try to point to like this hundred-year history where you know there's a lot of black and white photos in the stadium that show the championship teams from like the 20s. But yet, everybody all the tradition of excellence. And would you say there's cognitive dissonance there?
1: Oh, yeah, I would say so. I'd say Michigan fans will cheer for Michigan in front of Spartans, but when they're all together, they say, oh, we're just not that great. We just, and they get frustrated, and disappointed, but that's your team. I have so much cognitive dissonance about football. I would never let my children play football, but yet I love to watch other people's kids play football, and I'll cheer for them to take the head off the quarterback on the opposing team, despite the fact I know it's a brain injury and will lead to lifelong disabilities and injuries. It's just the world of cognitive dissonance for me, which is why I drink alcohol before I go to the football games sometimes. It's a world of that. And yet, yes, you, people are fans. They will cheer for it. And the one argument I will make for Michigan football is they won a national championship in the 90s and they're still somewhat relevant. In Nebraska, not so much. Tennessee, not so much. Florida, not so much. And there you go again, right? Looking to justify. Yes. Oh yeah, I, I'm, I am living it and I'm aware of it too. And I just deal with it in my mind
0: it's almost like we should just start every sentence when you make a claim about something. Uh, I'm aware of my cognitive dissonance, Mm -hmm. but here's what
1: I. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I feel it greatly when I watch the football games with my kids and I'm like, yeah, let's go. All right, Michigan hit that guy. You know, that's a brain injury,
0: but he chose to be there, right? He chose it. So therefore it's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I (laughs) remember watching a guy get hurt on a play and my son was like, isn't that a penalty? And I was like, no, no, it's perfectly legal to, to just absolutely destroy them if they have the ball. You can hit them as hard as you want. Oh, wow. Okay, I guess so. Like, uh... Well, again,
0: that's why pro wrestling, I really think, explains the world. Because after writing down my WrestleMania four example, I just wrote down in the late 90s, every Monday night, Stone Cold Steve Austin was giving his boss, Vince McMahon, a stunner. And, you know, he was hurting his boss, his employer, the guy that signs his checks, Well, he hates his boss or the boss isn't being nice to him. Therefore, he should get hit. And you're cheering for it all the time. And it just makes zero sense.
1: I think every red-blooded American that doesn't like their boss loved that moment and was cheering for Stone Cold to chug a beer and hurt his boss just like they want to hurt their boss if they're frustrated with them. And yeah, it was brilliant, brilliant marketing.
0: (laughs) Playing out cognitive dissonance every Monday night. A couple minutes ago, you had mentioned that the
1: American
0: COVID-19 cases are racing across the world and certain areas like Europe have sort of gotten it under control. One thing I was wondering about cognitive dissonance is it seems like every human has it, no matter where. It seems like it's probably a universal issue. But do you think it's even greater in the minds of American? And I just say, like American culture in general we have grown up and we still have deep inside us this, this myth of the backwoodsmen, the pioneers following manifest destiny, people who took great risks just to get to this country or to continue to push west. The risks they knew, they could die, they could get dysentery, they could get sick, they had no guarantee about when they got there. You could say the logical play was just to stay wherever you were, but yet we pushed on. And to this day, we continue to celebrate one's independence of spirit, independence of thought. We have lots of signs out there that say, get out of the box, think differently, be different. We celebrate that kind of stuff, which means basically we celebrate individuals who don't follow the herd, don't follow the masses. And do you think cognitive dissonance is just greater in America, and yet it's part of what makes our country, great. It's, it's part of what makes our economy so dynamic, our inventions, our ideas.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned inventions, because that's one of our strongest points. We file more patents than anybody else by a large, large margin, because we are inventive and think out of the box. But it's also because our country is so diverse, geographically, ethnically, culturally, our country is huge. And when you compare it to France, where it's a relatively small geographic area, The population, especially the population with wealth, is fairly homogeneous, and it's easier to get everybody on the same page, whereas here, there's just so much more. American culture was so diverse that what brought us together was radio shows, and that was a common experience. And At one time, it was newspapers that people all read or comic books, but that's becoming less so. The commonalities between all our vastly different peoples are becoming less so, because the most common things we have is... We all watch Tiger King or we all watch the NFL, but the NFL is not on right now. So I think we're just a disparate group of people.
0: And as you said, like we've always been though. And yeah. I sort of wonder if, and again, it's not. I, I hate to bring it back down to an issue of public health and masks, but if you're trying to get to why, is there such a disparity in how people see it? I do wonder if there's just something fundamental about us. You mentioned the revolutionary period. I mean, you could argue that whole revolutionary war, the whole idea of breaking away from the most powerful empire on earth is just one large moment in our history of cognitive dissonance, right?
1: Oh yeah, you could argue that we are—we um, are. Our brains would not; our we would not allow ourselves to think that we are loyal subjects and we are disobeying them. So we're not loyal subjects. We are rightfully independent, and those are the thoughts of the prevailing and powerful people at the time. Perhaps that's the way our nation goes. Obviously, there are many in our society that, if they could wave a wand
0: and get people wearing masks, get people socially distanced, basically get everybody on the same page with the same behavior. They would love to do that. But do you think maybe our nation loses something, something about us, something about longer term, if, if we are able to harness everybody's basic behaviors? Is, is it possible there's, there's something to, be, get, to gain by, by not having these issues out there and having to work through them?
1: I think that there are few people who are not wearing masks out of principle. I think the majority of people aren't wearing masks because they just don't like discomfort and they just don't like to be told what to do. And if people could realize that that's the safer thing for us all, I mean, I wish everybody could get together and say, look, we could be done with this in two months if we all do these three things. And it's always wear a mask when you're in a big group, when you're outside in close proximity, people always wear a mask when you're in somewhere other than your house. And if you're sick, stay home and don't interact with people. If we do these three things, we could be done in two months. And we should have been lying these rules out. And we could all get together on them. And if we had the thought that these things will make us safe, we can be done with that, then those are two thoughts we can put together. And I think the wise nations really got that together during the lockdown. But our nation didn't. We just hoped magically it would just go away. It's like the kid that prays for the snow day before the test. It's short-sighted and unwise. The test will be there eventually, but I just don't want to deal with it tonight. So I feel like if we had better leadership, we could still be a strong, independent nation and just realize we can get this over with. It's not going away until we do what we need to do. We are all have our hopes set on a vaccine because our leadership at the top level has said, maybe it'll magically disappear one day. It's like wishing for a snow day. It's not gonna go away today or tomorrow. Maybe, maybe there's a vaccine by the end of the year, but that seems a little bit far-fetched to think that this will all be over by winter.
0: Well, that's a good point. The, The messaging from the GOP and for President Trump seems to have shifted to, we need to learn to live with it. We need to learn to deal with the virus which is kind of different than a couple of months ago, but it's definitely trying to shape people's perceptions of it's not going away. What was interesting was last week, the president and his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, came out and started talking about schools opening up in the fall. Some schools down in the South, especially, usually start in the beginning of August. Our school districts start up in September. But Secretary DeVos said this on Fox News on Sunday, and she said, nothing in the data suggests children being in school is in any way dangerous. People are expecting that this fall, their kids are going to have a full-time experience with their learning, and we need to follow through on that promise. When you hear that sort of a quote, or maybe you've seen other quotes from the president, do you think that's cognitive dissonance?
1: I think it's a wedge issue. I think they see that there's a political opportunity to be made by saying, I'm the guy that wants to put your kids in school, because parents don't want their kids around. Parents want to send their kids to school. And I get that. I have kids. I want them to be in school. I think they'll probably be okay. And I guess I'll take my risks because some teachers are going to die from that. But at the same time, grocery store workers died or got sick and they still went to the grocery store. And it's the same thing of healthcare and policemen and firemen and all the other people that are working at essential places. It's it's just our turn to take our risk. I don't really think it's cognitive dissonance because I think it's just... We believe we can get people to vote for us. They're not that sophisticated. Well, we know going back to school has some risk,
0: but it's been interesting to hear people like talk about, well, if we don't send the kids back, then socially and emotionally, their growth is going to be greatly impacted. If we don't get them back to school, then parents can't get back to work, or women will be most impacted as many of them will not be allowed to go and continue their careers as they'll be the ones having to stay home. I've heard all sorts of arguments. Some of them seem quite legit. Other ones, you know, you're not quite sure where they stand. But it seems like as a nation, some of our leaders and even individual families that have an opinion about this issue are starting to find ways to justify taking on the large risk of sending kids back to school.
1: The American Pediatric Association said kids need to be in school. And so there, that's a group of doctors who said that the risk to children's health is less than the risk of them staying home. And I think we have to think in a little bit bigger picture about what it's like for some people to be home. For some people, like the children that you and I have, they're living in fairly high class with educated people, plenty of space, and they're not getting treated poorly by most people. But there's other kids that are living in poverty in a trailer or in a room with several other children or maybe an abusive parent or maybe a parent that's just not there. It's a really, really tough situation for some kids, and they definitely need to be back in because they're falling behind quicker than ever before. There's already a huge gap that develops, especially in impoverished kids in the summer, as you well know, and it's getting worse. So yes, they need to go back. And the costs are hard to tell because it's just the numbers are far higher than the spring. If it was a good idea to cancel school in the spring, now the numbers are twice or three times what they were then. Why is it a good idea to go to school now? Well, maybe it's because we can treat it better, maybe because we understand it a little bit more, I'm not sure, but at this point, it's a tough call to make.
0: Very tough. And
1: last week, you sent me an article from the New
0: York Times that was titled "How to Reopen Schools: What Science and Other Countries Teach Us." And I just kind of wanted to read you to review a paragraph from that. The article said. As school districts across the United States consider whether and how to restart in-person classes, their challenge is complicated by a pair of fundamental uncertainties. No nation has tried to send children back to school when the virus at raging levels like America's and the scientific research about transmission in classrooms is limited. The World Health Organization has now concluded that the virus is airborne in crowded indoor spaces with poor ventilation, a description that fits many American schools, But there is enormous pressure to bring students back from parents, from pediatricians, and child development specialists, and from President Trump. I'm just going to say it. It feels like we're playing Russian roulette with our kids and our staff, said Robin Kogan, a nurse at the Yorkship School in Camden, New Jersey, who serves in the state's committee on reopening schools. And the article does a great job citing Every study it can find and every example it can find of where schools have been opening in a pandemic. But one of the things I came away from reading this, Don, is that there isn't a lot of data and information out there. And I really like that idea of Russian roulette. If we do it, we're just going to be taking a chance and we'll have to figure it out once we start.
1: I really like this article because there was some concrete data, and the point that I really liked was there was a paragraph where it said, a community in northern France, two high school teachers got really ill with COVID early in February, and then they closed the school. Then they later tested for antibodies, and they found that 38% of the students had had it, 43% of the teachers had had it, and 59% of the other school staff had had it, and it had gone through the school, although two teachers got very ill. It had already been there for the most part. It had gone around. And I think that we may have had it. I think I know I had two students who were positive for COVID in my classes. I think I may have had it. I didn't feel great the first two weeks we were off of school, but I was okay. I also don't have any of the pre-existing conditions that put you at risk. But at the same time, it's nice to see that there's something out there, but we can't have expectations for perfect data. We're going to find out a lot because schools are going to start in early, mid-August in other states, and we'll see what happens there. We're lucky that we're a couple weeks behind, and we'll figure out, but we're going to learn a lot about that. We're going to learn a lot about the NBA and NFL as they try to sort this situation out. This is going to develop and go on. I'm not sure how it's going to go exactly, and the other thing is we don't know if the decisions are right till three, four weeks after it happens when we start counting how many people are there? How many people are out? Can we fill the classes? Can we have enough teachers? Are we going to send people home if they're sick for two weeks? It's, there's so many unknowns, but I did feel encouraged that there is some data out there.
0: One of the things that the article talks about that I at least found very interesting is that it seems like at your lowest elementary levels, there doesn't seem to be a high level of transmission. It seems like younger kids just don't seem to pass it along to each other. And therefore, it seems like that's the age group that you could start school. And that's also the age group that probably needs to be at school more than any other age group. As you get older, you're probably more capable of working online. But what was interesting is they kept getting up to higher grades, like middle school, high school. They were finding schools in Israel and in Europe that were passing this virus around to each other pretty regularly, and so it seems like that's maybe a data to point to,
1: to point to? Absolutely, and I think the way to start is elementary. Those kids are the most needy. Those kids are the least likely to transfer to each other. However, if they do get it, they're likely to bring it home to their parent with whom they have close contact, but that's where we need to start. Um, in many ways, our focus as a society has been largely on sports and high school sports and high school graduation and how will colleges work. And really, the most important group is the elementary kids. And that's the one we should be focusing on, even though it seems to be one of the last things that are I'm
0: hearing you, and I'm, I'm trying to guess, so I guess I'll just ask you, are you of the camp that we need to open them up then? We have to try, because we've got to, quote unquote, learn to live with this, and we've got to see what happens. Is that kind of where you stand, or, or do you say, no, nah, I, I want to wait? and just kind of see what's gonna happen in the South as they're gonna be opening up a couple of weeks early and we have the luxury to watch and, and make decisions
1: from there. I think we have to get going and get on it. I think that the level of this decisions have to be made at the state level, which it seems to be where people are going because it, my understanding is that all the decisions at the school districts are decided by what phase we're in as dictated by the governor. So that takes the decision out of the hands of the local people. Also true in California where the governor is the one that closed. LA Unified School District and San Diego School District. And so if the governor's making the decisions, then the school district just can go with it. As long as we're in phase four, we roll on and give this a try and see what happens and run it as best we can. It's going to be very interesting how it goes down. It's also going to be a tremendous challenge for the leaders in the districts that make the decisions. I have the luxury of being merely a teacher. I'm just going to show up and teach who's there or teach whomever is online. I can do either. We'll see how it goes, but I feel like we have to give it a shot.
0: The USA Today had a statistic I saw earlier this week. They said that one in five teachers across America is considering maybe not entering back into the classroom because they're scared about maybe their own personal health issues. They're just scared of going back into an area that's going to be tightly packed with bodies and stuff like that. Do you think that's, uh, do you think teachers have a legitimate concern on that, or do you think you know, they're employees, and if this is the job they're supposed to be doing, like, they need to show up and do it. Otherwise, they are definitely have the right to leave. Or do you think teachers should be, and their opinions should be considered by leadership in terms of how are they feeling about going in?
1: Well, I think Alex Azar said that teachers are going to be safe. The healthcare people were fine when they went back, and it was wrong. It rolled through the healthcare system, and a lot of people died. A lot of people got very, very sick and suffer from after effects. But the healthcare people still went. For the most part, all the people I know who are doctors went and answered the call. And same thing with the grocery store employees. I saw the same people at Trader Joe's that I normally see when I went shopping, even when this was really scary in the beginning and wasn't sure, nobody was sure, and a lot of people weren't wearing masks. I I understand that some people might be concerned. You and I got an email from our union with a survey that said, do you have all these pre-existing conditions? And as I looked at the pre-existing conditions, there's a lot of people in the staff where I work that have some of these pre-existing conditions. If that were me, I'd be pretty concerned. I am fortunate in that I don't have those. And so I'm willing to go. And I feel like I should answer the call. In some ways, who are we to think that we don't have to go in that cops had to go? Healthcare workers had to go, grocery store employees had to go. Really, why are we up on our high horse saying that we shouldn't go? I mean, it's a it's a poop sandwich. We're going to have to take a bite. We're going to have to go in there and be uh, and serve.
0: Thanks for that imagery. I appreciate that. Because one thing I've thought a lot about is, I mean, people will ask me, I guess, because I'm a teacher, they therefore think I know what the governor is going to decide about whether or not schools should open. But for some reason, in my gut, I always keep thinking. I feel like psychologically schools have to open. We have to at least try because people need to see a semblance of life returning to normal. And such a large part of the rhythm of the American calendar is going back to school. While maybe we can't finish that way if there's a spike, a part of me just feels like it would be really healthy and helpful for everybody to see that schools are trying to reopen.
1: And maybe if there's a semblance of normalcy, then people can say, all right, I can deal with this. I'm going to wear my mask. Things are coming back to normal. I can handle this. Because if the only thing you control is whether or not you wear a mask, maybe that's the one thing you don't want to do. It's like the kid that's a picky eater. You can't make me eat what I don't want to eat. And that's the one thing they can control in their life. So if we have schools, we have some normalcy, we get back on a rhythm, maybe we can wear some masks, we can get through it, and we start to come to a new normal. Because that seems to be what Europe and Asia have, which is a new normal. People wear masks. If they're sick, they stay home. We, they trace the people that are sick. And it's, for the most part, working. We just need to get on that common idea. I am with the president in that, sure, let's go back to school. Let's get into a new normal and figure out what that new normal is. And how do we live in this situation? I feel like my family's kind of figured it out. We're outside a lot going to be harder in the winter because this is the great state of michigan and it gets a little <laughs> chilly sometimes but we see people outside we don't really see our friends inside and we wear masks when we go to stores and we go inside and it's something we can adjust to but we got to get on a new normal and figure out what that is that's a really good point i hadn't thought about it like that of
0: maybe you you bring back what is a routine idea back to school and, and maybe that is a way to start triggering different behavior from some people that again don't want to wear a mask or be socially distant and all of a sudden it's like well we can have this i was down in tennessee a couple weekends ago and there was a sign that said if you want football wear a mask and if you want Maybe we need to start doing these things. I would also just say this New York Times article, if you visit it online, has some really good pictures of schools. And it's got a really cute kind of picture of a school in Thailand where all of these children are socially distant, wearing masks, uh, manipulating plastic cubes and stuff like that behind like large sneeze shields uh, almost. I don't know if that's going to be the classroom that I'm going back into but I do think this article at least points into some directions of, of ideas and things to follow. Also, there is the governor's report that came out a couple of weeks ago now. I guess just sort of my final question is, did that report have anything that kind of stuck out to you that maybe made you feel better or, or not so good about schools reopening?
1: It made me feel like we have a, a guidance, a plan, and a, at least an idea of what we're doing. You know, I think we can take this opportunity as schools to be leaders. Kids know to raise their hand when they want to talk. And I've seen adults raise their hand when they want to talk. It's because they've learned that and schools taught them that. In a way, schools can teach people to lead the way. How do you interact? Wearing a mask. If the kids learn it, maybe they'll teach the adults and show them what's acceptable and what's not and how you do things. And so this is our opportunity. And it's not one we should miss out on to really lead in this sense. And I think we can.
0: I thought the report was really thorough. It's like 68 pages. I didn't read every page, but I was very impressed with how the governor and the commission tried to think of every aspect of a class and how they can try and get it open. And the one thing I just kept thinking as somebody who works in a public school is public schools are very good about being given parameters and then starting to kind of work through the problems and challenges that each parameter has. They might not move always the fastest as we would like, but we're always constantly giving them new funding boxes they have to work on, or there's new mandates about how they have to handle certain situations in their buildings. And when schools are finally told, this is the box you have to be in, they can get pretty creative about solving all of these challenges. And I really feel like the district that you and I work in, and I'm sure districts across America, can meet the guidelines that the CDC or that governors give them.
1: And the new guideline I read was three to six feet apart from the CDC for kids. And if it's three feet apart, and if they need to wear masks six through 12, and if we need to have lunch in our classrooms, that's something we can work from and figure it out. And I think we were already talking about it. I was talking to an administrator yesterday who said he's been dealing with this, and people are asking him, well, what will happen when the kids come in the door? Won't they group up? No, we'll just tell them to go to their rooms and they'll sit in their rooms and wait. And that will be the new normal and they'll adjust. And I think we can do that. We can figure this out and get to a set of procedures that will run the game. And that's what we do. You're right. We run the we run the procedures. You tell us what the new rule is, we'll do it. The kids will adjust. We'll be moving on. And it's been a lot of change quickly, but I think we can do it. Well,
0: this has been a fascinating discussion. I really hope that in the fall we are trying to get back to some semblance of the routine, of the normalcy of school. I really hope that the most cognitive dissonance we're having in the fall, Don, is trying to convince ourselves that Michigan football is a national championship
1: contender. I don't think we're going to see Michigan football in the fall. I'm skeptical of college athletics in general. But yes, sure, we can say at least that they would have won the national championship this year if they had played. Well, they were undefeated. Absolutely. First time since 1997.
0: I was hoping that they were going to cancel all the games and just play max goals and therefore go undefeated, run the table versus Eastern, Western, Central, maybe even Northern Michigan, and then just sort of make an argument for why they should have a share of the national championship.
1: If they do play, it will be like the 1980s and that they'll play just the Big Ten schools. They'll win most of those games, maybe all if Ohio State's best players get sick from going to a tattoo parlor something and then they can say they're the national champions and they can argue with Alabama who also went undefeated and we'll never know and I kind of like that because then we can argue about it and talk about it
0: there will be a lot of like 70 and 80 year old men who remember Michigan back in the 50s and 60s when that was what they did in their schedule and I'm sure they'll just ask that hopefully they just do all running plays three yards cloud of dust to really complete the cycle
1: they may have to because you might not have the same quarterback week to week. Your chain, roster could be changing quickly as keep people get sick and they have to isolate. I don't even know how they're going to watch film in a, room, in a small room. <laughs> it's going to be a very, very different game, and maybe it will be the wing tee and, uh, <laughs> and the wishbone and things like that.
0: Oh, uh, I really hope there is football. I'm with you, though. I have that cognitive dissonance. Of I really just want to watch something. I want to watch something with sports.
1: How about we go find a t-ball game and we can sit in the outfield and boo the kids and uh, have have a sporting experience. (laughs) Go join the
0: parents that are actually doing that already, right?
1: Yes, that's right. Well, Don, thank you so much for
0: talking with me. Uh, It's been fascinating and uh, I look forward to talking with you next week.
1: Absolutely. Good to chat with you, Zach. All right. Take care. Bye.